0: Welcome to Hunts and Unicorns. I'm Simon Kutis and I'm joined by my co-host, Ollie Kune. Welcome back to the show, everyone. And it's a pleasure to
1: welcome Pete Agresta. Pete, welcome to the show. Welcome, gents. It's great to be here. And welcome to London. Um, I uh, am excited to be here. We came over uh, at the beginning of the week, had a bunch of great days. Yesterday we had our user conference. We had about 60 of our customers together. Um, day before we had a customer advisory board, so it's uh it's awesome to be here. It's my first trip over um, since I've joined Nasuni.
2: Amazing! Wow. Hopefully, um, yeah, you'll be over here some more.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. By way of an introduction, you you are currently the CRO at Nasuni, having previously been the Vice President of Americas at Pure Storage, where you helped to double revenue in four years to over a billion. Um, and previously you had a an amazing gig at, at uh, Looking Glass, where you were CRO, having started your kind of enterprise selling career at Cisco under John Chambers. So, we're really excited to hear about your story. What would be great for our listeners and our viewers is just take us right to the beginning. How did you enter into software sales? How did it all start for you?
1: Yeah, um, well, I started in sales. I, I, I kind of describe it, I hustled my way into the ground floor of a of a company which was a network uh, reseller based in New York City Um, and I and uh, I was lucky I got into the business right as the business was taking off and internet the great internet build-out was happening um, and I got exposed to a you know the business really of just sales and enterprise selling Um, because it was in the networking space we did we had a lot of uh um, relationships with Cisco and I got recruited into Cisco. And I, I'll tell you, that probably changed my career, definitely changed my life um, as an opportunity because I don't think there was a better sales organization to be at in the late 90s than Cisco Systems. Um, when I started there, my very first day actually was the sales kickoff and it was in Toronto and I flew up to Toronto. Um, you know, I knew I knew was I knew a lot about the company, but I was not prepared to walk in on, you know, we had just... Capped 100 billion in market cap, and you know the company was really—I was, I was called like the seventh inning stretch of Cisco's run, um, you know, at the beginning of Cisco. So, and I was—I was in the New York City office, um, selling into some of the largest Wall Street accounts, and it just was surrounded by um, absolute amazing go-to-market, you know, sales leaders and teammates, and so um, that was that—that was sort of how I got my career started.
0: You obviously had quite a a long stint at Cisco. You Mm. you spent just under nine years, I think it was, or or just over eight years. But um, you were exposed, as you said, to some of the largest accounts. Mm. Just take us back to that. How did that kind of, how quickly did you, assume those types of kind of enterprise selling roles and, and how was it also working closer with John Chambers when I had a big impact on you?
1: Yeah, well, um, you know, I think everyone uh, who started at Cisco had to first prove themselves. Um, so even though I was in the market and in the business and I came into you know a good job, my job was a target account manager and really I had the leftover accounts as, as I <laughs> call them. It was the, uh, I was assigned five accounts where Cisco, they, they had really chosen not to work with Cisco. Um, so so the real successful people over time had pruned these accounts from their books um, and they left them over for the new guy to go hunt in. And so I'll tell you, for the first year in that job, I was you know every day not sure I was gonna be there for the next quarter and the next quarter because you're surrounded by successful people um, and you're given the hardest accounts. So it, was, it wasn't easy. Um, but um, I managed to have some success, managed to crack uh, a, a really one major account, really at the end of my first year in selling. Um, and that kind of got me started and got me on the map. Um, over the next couple of years, we just were experiencing tremendous growth. And um, we had, you know, Cisco was very well known as an acquisition driven company. Lots of uh, technology development that happened. Um but what I was fortunate enough was because we were doing so much acquisitions, and I was calling on some of the largest uh, accounts on Wall Street. All of those businesses wanted to be working with Cisco. So even though, you know, my job was to sell into the technology and the CIOs and the department, the network infrastructure team. Um, what I what what I uncovered was that we could build relationships across the firm, um, because the bankers wanted to talk to Cisco and our MA teams and we were doing cash management. So, um, man, this was not only me, I was really driven by some of the leaders in the office that we, we figured out that you really could develop relationships and drive business to business relevance. And it wasn't just about the technology point solution. Um, and through that effort, you know, we, we got a lot more success. So, um, Later on, when I went to Pure Storage, part of the reason I went to Pure is because at the time, Charlie Giancarlo, who's the CEO of Pure, was a senior exec, um, partially responsible for our MA activity, um, and at, at some point was responsible for a lot of the product development. So, you know, I asked Charlie to be an executive sponsor for Lehman Brothers and, and Goldman Sachs. And so, as I was calling on those accounts, I had a real relationship hotline back into Charlie and, and John Chambers, um, you know, would often say at the time, as goes New York, so goes Cisco. And that was really meant to say Wall Street was a major, major market for Cisco. Um, so all the executives would come out and spend time and they wanted to spend time with me in the accounts. And so really good salespeople learned how to leverage all of the company. Um, so you weren't just selling technology, you were really trying to build business partnerships. And, um, you know, that was a very, very heady time. As I said, it, it definitely set my career, you know, in a, in a pretty fast pace.
2: Definitely. And I think, you know, we obviously mentioned it, which is obviously John Chambers had quite a bit of, bit of big influence on you at that point. You know, how closely were you working with John and, and what sort of influence did he have on you as an individual?
1: Well, you know, it's funny. Um John was obviously the CEO of the company and, you know, a larger than life, uh, executive. Um, but I, I, would say actually the local sales executives were really who I looked up to and partnered with. And I, I often think about that as my career's progressed, it's like the most important executive for most salespeople is the, you know, the director who can directly influence yeah. and coach you on deals. Be part of your sales campaign, build relationships inside of accounts with you. Um, and while John had that, because John would come to New York and he set the bar very high for being a um, being able to connect and talk about our technology in really, really compelling business terms and get us into. I mean, I've sat in meetings with um, you know CEO of Goldman Sachs, and John would say, "Do you mind, Hank?" Paulson, do you mind if um, I have my sales exec in this meeting with us? Because that will help him, you know, work with your teams. Um, so that kind of example where it's like the CEO of the company would elevate the sales executive and say, this is not a meeting that you're not in. To be, to be relevant um, in your job, you need to understand the conversation that we're having in the boardroom. Um, so John set the tone. And that was, you know, an amazing experience to be sitting in those meetings early in my career. Um, but as I said, it was like there's folks like Nick Adamo um, who, you know, uh, retired from Cisco, still in the business. Um, you know, I, I kind of credit Nick as the person who hired me. He didn't directly hire me, but he ran the business. And um, Nick was a huge influence. Um Pat Finn, uh, who I'm very close to this day. Actually, later on, he was on the board at Looking Glass. How I ended up at Looking Glass, right. um, you know, there's some some people who really built Cisco in those days. Many, many more um, who I learned from and and learned about being relevant, spending time with customers. Um, it's not about your technology, mm-hmm. and yeah. if you want to be effective in enterprise sales, and you want to be an elevated salesperson. That that actually has credibility. Yeah, you got to get into the business, um, yeah. and you and to do that, there's lots of ways to do it, but um, it's on it's on you not to be only focused on your company. Yeah, I
2: think this is a great opportunity to really talk about you know stuff that we've spoken about in the past, which is all around value creation and building that into your sales motion. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more around that, please?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that. Um, um, you know, there's there's trainings and there's you know lots of ways that we try to train salespeople to understand the customer, um, and they, and they all have value. So there's good things about it. But I think fundamentally, it's you need to hire a team and have a team that's genuinely curious, um, and it starts from that. If you want to, if I want to create value, um, I need to understand what what's valuable for you. What are you trying to accomplish? Why are you trying to accomplish it? And what you often find is the technology um, organizations, and actually, if you take a step back. Don't, it's not limited to technology organizations. You work for a large company. Sometimes it's easier to be an external person. It's easier to be a salesperson and come consult with somebody because you're studying it. Like I would often say, um, you know, your job as a global account seller, if you're calling on you know large enterprise accounts, is you go get your MBA in that account. Yeah. You know, um, you 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 really go learn what they're trying to accomplish, and that starts obviously the easy read the annual report. Like I would always go buy stock in the company that I was selling to, and go to the annual meeting. Right. Um, and there's no other way to kind of really start to understand how they're talking to their shareholders. Um, and those types of things is like when you go then to call on the technology professional who's been there for three years, I know more about what the business is doing sometimes than they do. And I can help them accomplish what they want to accomplish. So to me, it's um, that's how you connect with people, you know, professionally and personally. And that matters. It totally matters. And so whatever technology you're representing, you can put it in context. And you can help someone achieve, you know, understand why where their project and how it's getting funded fits into their goal. And that helps their career. So um, my saying that I, I use all the time now is if you're confused in your job, go see a customer. Right. Go see a customer. Get out of your office. Go spend time um, with the people you're really trying to build a partnership with. And so that that's that's made made me successful in my career. And there's times when I've taken new roles or done new jobs, and um, I always go back to that advice to myself. If I'm confused, I don't, you know, not exactly sure what challenge I'm trying to overcome or I'm facing, or I wanna really be relevant internally to my customer or to my company. I wanna work with our product developers, and like, the best thing I can do is go spend time and really understand customer, what they're trying to do. That's
0: a great bit of advice. Yeah, so, do you think that having that innate curiosity—what well, is it innate? Is 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 curiosity something that can be taught? Is it something that you can coach, or or is it something that you just
1: have? I think that you. Um, I think it's more innate. I don't think you can really um, coach curiosity. Um, I think you can take curious people and coach lots of other skills, but I think when you when you're uh, building a team, and you're trying to um, find, you know, what kind of elements and what to put together. I think, you know, drive, motivation and curiosity are innate. That's, you're, you're trying to uncover people that have that naturally. Um, industry relevance, you can teach. Um, technology, you can learn. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, it's hard, it's hard to coach personality. So, I think you hire <laughs> for personality and you coach for skills.
2: How do you assess that in an interview stage? How are you assessing the natural curiosity
1: levels? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think the um, I, I don't I don't know if I have a specific technique. Um, over my career, I found that you have to um, be recruiting. Recruiting is you know as you're building a sales team, and as it's, it's it's a little bit ironic, but the bigger your role, the more you have time you have to actually spend on recruiting because your team will define you. Um. And so how do you develop people and and where you spend time recruiting and who you're talking to? You know, I'm having lunch after this, uh, you know, to go network and to talk about, you know, people in the market and where that might come from. So I think it's, um, I think that, you know, sometimes we've div- I've put in place like systems and who's gonna interview and how how you're interviewing for those, you know, I think there, it's a little bit um, um, something that you have to just reinvest in yourself every once in a while, how are you finding people?
0: So, so, as as mentioned, you spent the best part of nine years at Cisco, and then you decided to leave Software sales and head into Wall Street. Tell us a little bit about that. what you know what was what was the drivers behind that? and what did you do?
1: Yeah, well, um, well, I left uh, Cisco and I was at the time a regional manager running uh, a group of the Global Financials. And uh, I wanted to go try my hand at Wall Street. Maybe that's because I'm curious, and I, I was a little curious about you know what else was there. And, and um, you know, to be honest, I also was, um, wanted a challenge of, of the markets, which I found really intriguing and interesting. and I also wanted to make a lot of money. And I thought this was a pretty good opportunity for all this. Um, I went to a company called Sanford Bernstein, um, which is Alliance Bernstein and it was uh, probably the best research shop on Wall Street. And uh, I stayed there for seven years, so it was a long stretch. I got there right at the beginning of the great financial crisis. Um, fascinating kind of change of industry. A lot of skills come with you um, about sales and connection. And as I said, being curious and learning. Um, you know, we were selling research to investment managers. So um, you know, the job was to really understand your research and help your analyst you know, put that in context for investors. Um. So yeah, it was a it was actually a, a fascinating business. Um, as I said, a lot of the sales skills came along. But I actually, if I if I really were to look back in, on it now, I'll tell you some of the best sales skills are I think are more in the technology business. Um, you know, there's great investors that are also good salespeople in the um, in the equity research business. Yeah.
2: What what skills do you think you learned that have enabled you to? I suppose elevate to where you have, or have any of those skills that you learned at Wall Street and and having experienced that different line of work helped you in, I don't know, your job today?
1: Yeah, I think that um, what's interesting about equity research business is that you you are selling to a professional investor and they usually know the product even better than you do. It's kind of like, Mm -hmm. if you think about your product being research sales, someone who's invested Millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars, into a company has a point of view, and they've researched it far more than you ever could. So um, you have to you have to find the insight in the in the work that you're doing, and you have to be able to really connect the dots between why it should be relevant to somebody. And th- and that skill that I developed in that role was to do that every single day, right. every single day, digest a huge amount of information. And try to be compelling and relevant to someone and be respectful that, you know, I don't know everything that you might know about the situation, but I have an insight that I think can help you. And I think that um, the ability to do that and to find confidence in that I can study something and find an insight and bring it to a customer um, is something that I, I took from that. And I coach into teams now. It's like you... you if you're gonna be in sales, if you're gonna be an SDR starting on the phones, is like that's the similar kind of scenario. Like you're calling someone who is a professional for years in whatever discipline it is. In the technology business, they've built and run and operated systems and you graduated from college two years ago or two months ago. Um, you have to find the confidence to really connect at a human level with somebody and to have an insight. You don't have to be profoundly knowledgeable about every situation in order to be a meaningful salesperson and make a meaningful connection. Um, And I I learned how to do that efficiently when I was doing because that's what the job was really in equity research. And I've brought that as I've built out SDR teams or worked with young professionals on my team now. Uh, It's really bringing that confidence and how to bring confidence and don't be – shy just because you don't have the industry knowledge of years and years of experience you can be valuable and you can connect and you can drive your quota and your commissions and your sales and your company's success
2: incredible and so seven successful years um on wall street um what drew you or pulled you back into the software sales
1: yeah i always describe it uh you know my cisco days were special and it was a community and it was building something, and it felt like you were a part of a team. And um, although I was personally successful working on Wall Street, it was not a team sport. Um, And um, I also had other friends that were part of my early tech community, who had gone on to do some really amazing, interesting things. and, And I was a little bit jealous to go back and build and be part of something. And um, I decided to to come back to the technology business. Yes, yeah, so it was uh, a weird career, kind of a, a long, a, a weird career trajectory. Mm-hmm. Um, and I came really into a series B startup um, that was just launching They're building their go-to-market team. And I was part of that early group. So uh, that was, uh, yeah, quite an experience coming back to the business. It was kind of the second chance to reinvent myself and, you know, leaving a successful team and and running a you know decent chunk of the business, to go with zero sales and you know and and seven people around a conference room table trying to figure out what should we call our uh, our, our technology, what category should we be in, and <laughs> who's going to be our customers.
0: It's really interesting because you did have two stints, um, you know, with kind of early stage companies, and then you went into Looking Glass, where you took a chief revenue officer role. Suppose just wanted to reflect how quickly you've been able to rise, you know, in terms of your career. The trajectory is so impressive. What is it that you think you did well that enabled you to really have such an accelerated career trajectory in such a short time?
1: Well, I appreciate that perspective. It didn't feel like a a, a short period of time uh, as I was going through it. Um, I, I think the I think that um, you know it's a combination of, um, of trying to be great at sales and, and craft and leadership and team building um, with with the thought process of trying to understand the business. Um, and I think you know having spent time with Wall Street and, and on Wall Street and really studying businesses and what is the, you know, what drives it? What metrics are you trying to do? And, and what, how does the CEO think? And how does the CFO think? And how does the investors think? And what does the board care about? And the combination of being an operator and running sales teams and building businesses and also being able to connect with the, the executive teams and boards, um, I think was, it allows me to kind of translate then what you're doing, why you're doing it, and what kind of resources do you need and what what is the other departments need to, you know, what do I need from all the other parts of the organization? So I, th- I think it's th- that's really the the difference um, between just being an operator, it's also understanding the business and and what you're trying to achieve in the marketplace.
0: Mm. W- w- what's interesting is that obviously you were given the Chief Revenue Officer role, having had some relationships which you've leveraged from your time at Cisco. You've obviously got an invisible reputation, which has really en- enabled you to give those executives the trust in you. How important do you think that is in terms of really elevating you and, and really building those relationships at every stage of your career, not just at kind of at key moments in your career?
1: I, I think it's a great question. You know. I, I and I, and I can tell you, in, as I've taken roles, there's individual contributors that will be on the team that will make a huge impression on me um, because they're curious and they reach out and they're you know, bringing me into their business issues. Um, and it stands out. And I think I was one of those people in my career and you know, connecting with different people. I, and I always felt like uh, I don't care if anyone works for me. I don't care if anyone reports to me, as long as you all work for me, and that's that was my attitude uh, as a as a salesperson. Because at the end of the day, you're representing your business and you're running your own franchise, and so I'm going to use every resource that I possibly can if it's the right thing for the account. And I see that when on my teams, and as I've traversed my career, the best salespeople build relationships internally. It's not politics; mm. it's because they're trying to do their best job. And it happens very naturally. I'll tell you, um, on, because I was planning to come over here, uh, I have an account manager on the team. We had done, you know, I guess, eight weeks ago, uh, a, an account review. And he took it upon himself to book a meeting, use my visit as a reason to get into an executive um, that he hadn't been able to get into before. He probably called me thirty times, Slacked me. I don't use Slack. Texted me. Got with my EA. You know, did an account plan, built it out, um, scheduled a debrief, pre-brief. You know, and then asked me instead of flying to London, would I fly to Manchester on the red eye on Monday night because we needed to be um, it, to go see the customer on Tuesday morning, which I gladly did. Now, that's just an example of someone. He was not trying to build a relationship with me. He's trying to succeed in his job. Mm-hmm. But naturally, the byproduct is I spent a whole bunch of time with them and we coached him on the deal and we were together in it and we got a lot of feedback and so that's my advice to people is you know if you're passionate about your building your business, it will naturally lead towards opportunities. you will you won't be shy about involving me in your deal because, you're gonna use every resource. You'll call the CEO, right? And I I think I've always appreciated that. Um, And um, no matter how big the team is, how big the company is, um, the great salespeople, it comes naturally where they build relationships internally
2: it's it's amazing we we hear about it a lot internal and external champion building but the way you talk about you know the opportunity to get out and you know engage with your customer you you can clearly feel it's something that you're still really passionate about do you still love getting amongst the, the deals and still getting amongst you know customers yeah
1: there there there's nothing better you know i started at this role at the beginning of this year so that was january um and I live in New York. The company's based in Boston, so I've been in Boston um, pretty much the whole, every week, though you know the, the first part of the year. And we had a board meeting, and I, I told uh, my CEO and, and my president, who I report to, I said, "You guys won't see me in Boston until the very end of the quarter, because now it's time for me to get out in the field and spend time with customers." And there's really no better you if the, as you get higher and you're in a different role. The tendency to spend all of your time internally, it, it happens to people, and uh, you have to fight against that. You can't do that. The only way that I'm relevant as a as a revenue leader is to understand what's happening at all the different parts of the organization, you, and you can't do that from reports. You can't do that from calls. Mm. You have to spend time with your team, and you have to spend time with customers. So, and partners, and you know, in this business in all businesses, but specifically in this business, you have to build a really um, viable partner ecosystem and you have to understand what's driving their businesses and how you can all work together. So uh, it's contact sport, sales is contact (laughs) sport and you gotta be out in the field. So we,
2: 2016, 2019, two and a half, very successful years, CRO, looking glass, Tell us about the transition in 2019 into Pure Storage and how the opportunity came about.
1: Yeah, so um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, back to my Cisco uh, roots, um, I had kept in touch with a couple of key executives that were really important in my early career, um, one of which had been Charlie Giancarlo. And Charlie had gone into the investment business actually doing private equity <laughs> investments and um, at one point I asked Charlie when I was working on Wall Street, would he come speak at a customer event? And, you know, I developed, a, I always had a very healthy respect for Charlie as a leader and as a um, uh, as a thinker, an entrepreneur. And I knew he had come to Pure Storage. Um, and Charlie called me up one day and said, hey, um, Pete, we, you know, i at Pure. And I was like, no shit, I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but, you know, he explained that Pure had, built an amazing, an amazing product um, and an amazing business, you know, really changed a business model at the same time they innovated on the technology. And it was that combination of innovation on the business model and core innovation in a technology space that really propelled Pure. Um, but his observation was, we had, we were having trouble building relevance in the enterprise because that's where the competitors were most entrenched and they just were not going to allow pure easy access to their to their customer base so while the company had had success um there was no segmentation with an enterprise leader um prior to me joining. so when i joined i was the first um first head of the u.s enterprise and the team you know the team had been there and you know but we had just segmented it and Charlie's, Charlie's point was, um, and he would say it this way, enterprise is not a segmentation strategy, it's a business strategy. So to really compete in the enterprise, you need different partnerships, you need different solutions. You have to be, you know, enterprises, when you're talking about core technology infrastructure, don't make decisions in three months or six months or nine months. Um, you make architecture decisions and, then, and you wanna be partnered with a, a vendor that's going to be there in three years. And so, um, so you have to develop that go-to-market motion. And I, I was fortunate enough to be joining a team—some amazing, successful um, people at Pure had already succeeded, but we wanted to run the business a little bit different, more appropriate for the enterprise. Um, so yeah, I joined and uh, had a had a, a, a great um, great experience at Pure, as I said, for just uh, just about four years, just like mm. one month shy of four years, I think that I was there.
2: I think it's, it's an interesting, you know, we've had lots of different people on the show talking about, you know, different sales motions, not every single tech, every, t- every organization requires a different look at the, the go to market and the sales motion, you know, talk to us about the actual process that you go, you've come into Pure Storage, you're creating this enterprise model, where does it start? How do you start to figure out what you do next?
1: yeah oh uh, um and and i we didn't i didn't do everything perfectly right for sure um and and you know as i said there was a, a established team and there was just established leaders who had been part of pure from dollar zero um who knew the storage industry and i was not a storage person as a matter of fact when charlie you know asked me to come consider pure i was like Storage is the most unsexy part of the data center. <laughs> like I was selling cyber, you know, threat intelligence, and I was like, uh, "Storage, I don't, I don't think so." Uh, um, which well, actually, that was the opportunity because pure thought, and that's what uh, later at Nasuni, I I really understand that part of the technology stack had lacked innovation for so long; it was just ripe for disruption, and so that's what's exciting about it. Um, but the inter- to build out the enterprise team, um, really, you know, there was people who had been trying and had been calling on the major accounts and, you know, had gotten one array sale. And then that never really got uh really took off in that part of the business. And I think what we needed to do was really almost separate ourselves from some of the commercial go-to-market motions. And it was like, everyone knew what to do. I'd say we had a lot, lots of people who had succeeded wildly in enterprise sales in other industries. But it come to Pure, and I think um, because the, the company was so um, driven by building effective partnerships, and that's like one of the key, key Pure Storage unlocks to the market was like, we're going to treat partners as actual partners, that they're going to run businesses. And we're going to be 100% committed to that. Um, but what what happened a little bit was you know you got a motion that was a little more commercial driven we're gonna get a lead start talking to a customer and bring it to a partner to finish the sale um, or or start with the partnerships and by spending that much time with partners you you lacked the attention to really think about how to bring value and architecture sales to the enterprise and so w- what we needed to do Figure out was it wasn't about not knowing what to do it was actually making that the priority and that that meant stopping doing some of the things we did for commercial. And I I'll I'll tell you we I had some debates with um, my management my boss because we ran everything um, and um, you know I said I need to opt out of you know the Q two spiff because it's going to take people's attention off of where I wanted to be doing account planning. And so some of those, like, how do you actually operate the teams differently was what we needed to, to figure out. We did some experiments, um, some things that I, I brought to the table. I, I learned that um, you, you, have to, you have to win the locker room of your team. It's just as important as, as having the right idea and knowing what to do is making sure that you, you win the team and they believe that they're doing the right things and that they're bought in. No pocket vetoes from the key leaders on your team. Um, and I, I, did some of that, some, some things, well, some things I, I moved, uh, maybe I had too many initiatives and things I was trying to do. So, um, over time, we really, the leadership team and my key leaders and, 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 you know, I learned this actually from someone who was on my team, a real senior leader reported to me. And I, I'll tell you, I think I learned more from him than I imparted on him in our time together. Um, and he he just would say like you got to co-author this like if you're if you're a go-to-market team running a segment running a big business, um, everybody's fingerprints need to be on the plan, and you as the leader can be responsible for making sure it happens, enlisting everyone's support, making sure there's follow-through, but you can't be the only author um, about what is going to be the go-to-market and. Um, and as we developed as a leadership team, is really when we started to get um, true success because we were building and operating the team. We were all bought in on the game plan, um, and and yeah, we had some some real success there.
0: So, how do you find the balance between building a factory and being the chemist?
1: Mm. That's my that's one of my favorite uh, uh, thought thought tools um, <laughs> because I think that um, being being but, I, I probably am more a chemist naturally I like to try things um, I think there's lots of you know learning that can go on in an organization and just meet personally professionally and how to be successful um, but you have to make sure the, the trains are running on time the quote is getting delivered there's 13 weeks and a quarter you have to have an operation for how you run I've read this book here uh John McMahon was actually on the board of uh Skyport Systems, the startup that I joined, uh, I I had met him in an interview before I took the job. Um, And I I think that's one of the things I also learned from Pure was to run a big operation is you have to have great partners in RevOps and you actually need to commit to an operating plan. You have to install, I call it the operating system of your organization. Once you install it, and you, you commit to it, it's like the operating system, it's like your laptop. You don't think about the operating system, but you know on, you know, this is how it works. And I think um, I learned that at, at Pure, like really running a big, great operation and the operational discipline gives you time. When, when you don't have to think about what do you do on week six of your quarter, you know everyone on the team's gonna do the same You know, flush of your pipeline and review and your advancement of the deals, and every piece of data that is in your system and your deal reviews are going to be consistent because that's the way we operate. And if you can get that level of consistency, your time goes to the chemists, your time goes to thinking and what are the problems. And because I'm not thinking, I'm not stressing about what's the status of my deals. I got to do a forecast call with my boss. I got to be able to explain to the board what's happening. And that's just an output. That's an output of uh, an operating rhythm. So I think, you know, you have to really spend time installing the operating system, making sure everybody's on the same exact page amongst the team. And there's, it's not a, um, it's not an opt in, it's not an optional way that the team operates. But I think if you don't make your job as a sales leader about, um, you know, forecast reviews, it's an output of a great operation. And if you think about it that way and you, and you, you commit to it that way, it's amazing how much creative freedom it opens up for you um, to go spend time with customers, to go build value with people.
0: So it was obviously a very, very successful time. You know, you had a huge impact um, and you recently joined Nasuni as their CRO. Tell us a little bit about some of the headline stats, which do make Nasuni such an incredible proposition. Because you've you've got some great client affinity, among other things. So just tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, Nasuni is it's interesting because it's not the uh, the biggest startup in the in the trade rags, and it had been it had been around. I I sort of described as like I. Was very aware of Nasuni because we're in the data management storage space, but I didn't really compete with them when I was at Pure. Know lots and lots about them. So when I started to consider, you know, connecting, and I met the team, I was blown away um, about uh, exactly how mature the company was. It's uh, as a startup. I mean, it is a startup with a massively disruptive um, architecture type of sale that has achieved. Over 100 million in ARR, um, software business with top decile SaaS metrics across the board. 98% customer retention, 125% net revenue retention, amazing gross margins, 89% NPS score. We'll do. We'll grow 45% this year. And you know, I was like, this is an amazing business. As I said, like having spent time thinking about investment, I was like, this is an amazing profile of a business, and. How are they able to do that? It's because they have really developed along a very disruptive software architecture strategy, and had been spending years uh, maturing it and and bringing it to market, and built you know over seven hundred and fifty customers, um, and yet it was not you know the the most highly prolific. It's not all over the trade rags, and 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 that's because the company is really you know a mature, thoughtful uh, leadership team and board about you know, the pace of growth and building a sustainable business. Um, and so, you know, I always describe it, there's a lot of startups that are really brought, a, have a cool insight and they build a, a, a great feature in the market, but I was like, it's a feature masquerading as a product. It's not really a product that's gonna have a long lifespan. And then there's a lot of products that are sort of masquerading as a company or trying to be a company, and there's not really the right market or infrastructure um, to become a company. There's very few startups that are a company that's built to succeed, um, that's built to actually be in a big market, be profitable so that they can continue to reinvest in the technology, continue to innovate. Do acquisitions and become a viable, real business, and so my judgment of Nasuni was, they had reached that that point in the maturity cycle and well funded, really built to go public um, and and to go build a substantial global business, and I, you know I was so excited to to be part of it.
2: Obviously, there's some big players in this from the Net apps the Microsofts. You know, how is Sony gonna separate and differentiate itself um, from those big competitor from that big competition?
1: Yeah, I mean, I it, it's um the the core thing is that uh, the this part of the market in file data and file management. Um, as I, I described that pure you know the we were competing with companies that had last written an operating system in 1990, and at Nasuni it was very it's very similar like we basically it takes incredible um, fortitude to build a file system you know today um, and that's what the company did they they, they realized that object storage was going to change the marketplace. Um, but the right architecture now that you had cloud, now that you had object storage, the right architecture for file would be to build a global file system that allows orchestration. And so that's a really big bet that the founder, the founders made, uh, and it took a long time to build up the technology. You know, started as a niche niche technology business, it took a long time to be mature enough where the market happened, you know. I was I, I, I joke with the founders, our CTO today, I joke with him, I was like, it must have been missionary, you must have been a missionary back in the early day because you're selling cloud software um, when companies weren't going to the cloud. Like, so the, the, the premise of working with Nasuni was like, well, you know, you need three things to happen before the technology architecture really solves a huge problem, so you've made a big bet. Um, fortunately, you made a big bet in the right on the right things, and it, it came to be that um, the way the the way that data is managed today requires uh, a global file system that runs on object storage that allows you to take advantage of the cloud, allows you to build cl- private cloud data architectures, and orchestrate your data. At the end of the day, what I, I'd say now, um, Nusuni we are not a storage company because we don't store any data. We're a file data platform. We orchestrate how companies use their data. Um, and that, that intelligence about the data and how you can orchestrate it is really what unlocks so much value. Um, so today, we're in a spot where fortunately, you know, a long time ago, they made a big bet. I always describe it, one of the best when's the best time to plant a tree 20 years ago when is the <laughs> second time it's now and you know fortunately this tree was planted uh, a long time ago and they've developed the, the the technology and they've continued to innovate around it and now the market Opportunity is really very very ripe,
2: and and how does this translate to value to the customer? What what value is the customer getting?
1: Yeah, the, um, tons of value. This is the you know age old uh, issue of uh, storing storing files and using using data versus extracting insight out of your data and being able to optimize how you work. And if you're a data center manager, you're an IT, you're a CIO. Your job went from a cost job, cost center, and you're trying to eliminate cost. and the, And the CIO has become the business. It's now it's how do what, your data is the business, and the competitive advantage for companies in the next ten years is how they use their data. Um, and the tech, not the the great businesses will be excellent at at orchestrating their data, organizing it using and extracting data from it. And sometimes like I think I say big data is dead. It's not about having all the data in the world. It's actually knowing which which things to get rid of and knowing how to connect and pull insights out of your data. And that's all that's the position that Nisuni solves for and helps solve. It's part of the part of the part of the equation for great technology managers to learn how to use their data in, in highly intelligent ways, how to orchestrate it. And how to actually, as I said, change their businesses, change change the careers of people whose job it is to manage the data.
2: Mm. Well, I think if you have a look at the growth of the observability space, mm. right at the moment, it's it's a it's, it's a big indication, right?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think that's exactly um, that's a great that's a g- great observation because the way art the way software is built and the way software operates now is saying like you, you know all of the things that. Um, that used to be in a single system was a one-time decision by an engineer to to or you know team of engineers and developers to build is now can be tuned and can be you know run differently and that unlocks so much uh, value. I think the um, you know we in our we, yesterday as I said we had a, we had our customer advisory board and we did a, a preview of what a uh, product we call file data analytics will be part of our core platform. And it was so exciting to see, you know, the our our customers really getting excited about, you know, how much more they can do as they as they go deeper and deeper into the insights that come from from using the data. It's not just about it is day one. It's about I I can optimize my cost structure about how that works. Um, But the the really forward looking customers can see so much more uh, opportunity for. For how they operate their businesses,
0: and what's what's your mission then? So you, you've joined the organization. You know what what, what is the ambition? And
1: uh, yeah, yeah. Well, as I said, I joined because I this is uh, it's more than a it's more than a feature. It's more than a product. It's an architecture that uh, is building, and it's and it's a business that's built to become a substantial business. And so my mission is to accelerate the growth. Um, to build out the go-to-market teams, to be really thoughtful about um, what markets we enter and how we build that, what partnerships we, we do. And, um, you know, I think this is a business that will uh, easily could be a public business um, in the right market. And I think if we get the right timing of how we build the business <laughs> and, and how the market uh, comes together, it, should be, it could be an exciting uh, number of years for us here.
2: Amazing always interested you know I think I've been able to definitely draw some some alignments from your Wall Street days to to obviously you know your experience as a CRO ever thought about becoming a CEO at some point is there
1: <laughs> well uh, right now I'm super excited for this job and, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm super excited for this job I think that um, um, you know it, 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 the, the way this company operates too it's like uh, it really truly is a partnership at the executive team. Um, I love the colleagues that I'm working with it's and uh, you know from our head of product to our chief technology officer to the president to head of marketing and our CEO and the board it really is a very collaborative team and um, I'm just excited to be here and I'm excited for the opportunity I think
0: it's a great time to really reflect on what we've heard today because um, I think there's some kind of real key takeaways that I've taken personally from this and I wanna start off by the, the the concept of building internal and external champions. And I think one of the things that we, we, we've spoken about is that intent to really understand and build relationships throughout your organization and with your customers. And it's not just about building champions above, but it's also building champions below. Because as, as you mentioned earlier, unless you've actually got people that really buy into anything that you're working towards and, and you're working collaboratively on that, it's really difficult. It's, it, it is the ultimate change management mm-hmm. concept. And I think that the concept of really being able to go and elevate yourself within and your career you, you do need to rely on on champions who are going to help to 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 propel you and, and and elevate you forward and and the second point i think the thing that really jumped out to me is this kind of inquisitive mindset to really just go out there and and, and and learn and be curious and i think that that's something that has really enabled you to to find the angles and and find the solutions because you're not focusing on yourself you're focusing on others and i think that that's something that really really resonated so We've really enjoyed having you on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Yeah, right on. I've, I've loved the podcast. And uh, I think you guys are are really bringing something unique and special to the community and the marketplace. And I'm, I'm excited I got a chance to be with you today.
2: Oh, it's an absolute honor. Thank you so much for um, for joining us today. So to all our listeners, thank you very much for, for tuning in today. Please do subscribe to our various channels, iTunes, Spotify, and youtube all the links will be in the description below but we look forward to walking you back for another session soon thank you for joining us